there, and welcome to the Career Women Becoming Fearless podcast. This is the podcast where you learn how to grow in your career and skyrocket your belief of what is possible at home and at work. I'm your host, Melissa Lawrence. I'm a certified coach with a master's degree in organizational psychology and over a decade of experience coaching and developing career women like you. Let's get started. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Today, we are going to dive into imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is when you feel you don't belong, when you haven't quite stepped into your power yet, when you aren't seeing yourself as the leader or the person others do or that you're capable of. It is so real. In fact, almost 70% of women have experienced it at one time or another. Men can experience it too, but it's at not such a staggering rate. If you suffer from imposter syndrome, research shows that you can experience emotional exhaustion, which causes conflict not just at work, but at home too. Women have a never-ending juggling act of roles to play, and society has certain roles that are expected of us at work and at home. We aren't born with a sense of imposter syndrome. It's a logical reaction to the world we live in, experiences experiences from how we were raised and our inner beliefs about ourselves and others. Imposter syndrome shows up in a lot of different ways. Now for me, this showed up as me going to a meeting and not speaking up, waiting until the perfect time to offer my idea, wondering if it was the right time, and then sometimes not doing it at all. Looking around and sizing people up, what will they think? Do they know more about this than me? Is my opinion valid? And this is so common. And I worked in the pharmaceutical biotech industry for over 10 years and before that in government consulting. And the pharma biotech is very male dominated. Um, A lot of PhDs, a lot of scientists. And I think that probably played into it too. And most of the companies I worked for also had these town halls or all employee meetings to give business updates and for the leadership to connect with the workforce. These days, these meetings are virtual, but back when these were in person, they were kind of all set up in the same way. All the employees would come together in a large auditorium or cafeteria. There would be rows of chairs like a classroom. Leadership would assemble in front and stand in front of the room with some PowerPoint slides and a microphone. I'm sure you've been there. It was always interesting to watch people and where they sat when they came in. I found my comfort level of where to sit changed depended on the leadership and always the first row or first two rows was for the most important people, like an invite only situation, except it wasn't an actual rule. There were rarely ever name tags, except when executives would visit. It was kind of an unspoken rule. When you go in, you leave the front for the leaders, for the outspoken. I usually sat in the front half, so not in the back, not even in the middle, but not the front, usually about four to five rows in. I wouldn't sit on the end too because that was too visible. I wanted the comfort of my peers around me, right? Like, have you ever heard, <laughs> I just thought of this, have you ever heard of when um, 
I read some, like it was a sociology study and it was about when you go into the bathroom and you know, there are four or five stalls there that which stall you choose says a lot about your confidence and kind of your self-concept, how you think about yourself. So if you go to the middle, you kind of want that comfort of being around other people. If you go into the first stall, you're more leadership driven. If you go in the last stall, then you're uh, more uh, like internal and you don't necessarily like to be outspoken or be the leader. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I guess you could think about which stall you choose and decide if that is something that resonates with you. Um, but that made, me, that made me think of that with these rows of chairs and how the front, the very first ones were had this unspoken rule that they were for leaders and then there would be the people that would kind of come in the back and stand so they could leave if they wanted to and wouldn't be too uncomfortable and then there were kind of the middle of the row. Um, <laughs> so other leaders in this time of my tenure would tell me to sit in the front and I would say, no, that's not for me. I want to sit with my people, my peers, right? Eventually I sat in the second row and even the first on occasion but it was difficult to do. I didn't feel I belonged there. This is so common, especially for women and for women who work their way up from kind of a mid or entry level point. You can feel like an imposter, like your identity isn't quite aligned with the way you think about yourself and the way others see you, like there's a disconnect. And so others might see you as a leader. You might have worked your way up to that point, but you don't internally feel that way. And so that can show up like it did for me, which was not wanting to seem too big for my britches, right? Not wanting to um, sit where it was uncomfortable, where it was more visible. I needed to be with my peers, with my people. So leadership can also really play a role with this. When I had an authoritative dictator style leader who encouraged competition among staff, I was less comfortable being visible. I didn't want to be called on or picked on. Now, this was all in my head, of course. This fear was my own lack of confidence that if I was picked on, that what I said may not be valued or I would be judged for it. I didn't have the confidence to accept that even if that happened, it didn't mean it was true, that their perspective was valid or that it meant anything negative about me. I just wasn't there yet. It's something I still had to work on. I did though, I did overcome it and learn to speak up without fear. I saw myself as a leader and an advocate for employees and I took that job seriously. I knew my perspective mattered and I felt I belonged because I decided I did. I encountered this again when I opened my coaching practice. Here I was again. So I had taken this journey in this corporate world. I had overcome my fear. I had learned to experience any emotion. I had decided I belonged. I had connected who I was and my identity and the role that I played all into one. Finally made it there. Imposter syndrome was no longer an issue for me. But then I opened my coaching practice. Here I was again, less experienced in being a CEO and so many other coaches out there with flourishing businesses. In some ways, I felt I was starting over do I belong? Can I really be a CEO? Can I run my own business and be profitable? Do I know how to solve my own problems without a company strategy overarching me? 
turns out I do. (laughs) But it did come up and I did have to work through it. So see, regardless of what change you're making or where you sit in the organization, it's normal to feel a bit of imposter syndrome. I see this um, with my clients who are moving from mid-level to leadership positions. They are so used to being the worker bee and playing a certain invaluable role that when they are asked to present at large events, pitch an idea to senior leadership, attend meetings with executives, they wonder why they're there and if they're really supposed to talk and they start doubting themselves and questioning themselves or being overly grateful that they were even invited. They may ask questions like, Am I here to listen or to speak? Should I take notes? Maybe I was just invited to take notes. Maybe this was just a development opportunity for me. We put ourselves in the very position we don't want to be in before someone can tell us that we got ahead of ourselves. Before we can feel that humiliation that feels so real that we think might happen because we're not sure we belong, we decide that we don't. And I will never forget a senior leadership meeting I was invited to. It was for senior leaders and their direct reports. It was my first one like this. There was enough room at the table for about 20 people. And then there were chairs lined up around the walls of the room for the overflow. I walked in and I wasn't sure where to sit. Like the town halls, I questioned, was there an unwritten rule? Is the table for the senior leaders and the Um, the direct report sit against the wall. So I took the safe choice. I sat against the wall, but toward the front. I felt it was a compromise for me. I wasn't in the back, but I didn't have the confidence to sit at the table. I thought, what if someone asked me to move because there was that rule and I didn't know it? How humiliating would that be? It's like the town hall, not in the front, not in the back. I was there early because I, <laughs> I was always and still am a very punctual person, and I watched as each person walked in the room. The senior leaders sat at the table. Some of the directs sat at the table, but interestingly, only the men. I then watched some strong, amazing women who were leaders of departments and large groups sit against the wall. There was room at the table, you guys, and they sat against the wall. I was taken aback. I mean, I did, but I was just in, I sat there too, but I was just invited and I wasn't a direct yet. So that's how I rationalized it is this isn't my normal meeting. I was invited as a guest because of a project I was on. I don't know the rules. So I'm going to take the safe space. But when I saw these women who were in my mind very worthy of sitting at the table. This was their regular meeting and they didn't. Even those that worked there for 10 years or more. I was so surprised. Once everyone was in the room, I looked around. Only the senior leaders, which one or two of them were women, the rest were men, and then the directs of the senior leadership team that sat at the table were men. Around the wall were some men because there weren't enough spaces for all and not every man took his seat at the table. And all the women that were not senior leaders, including me, sat around the back of the room, around the wall. What did this say about our culture? What did this say about us as women? 
No one told us to sit against the wall. We just did. There wasn't a sign that said, if you're a direct report, if you're a woman, sit here. It was the choice we made. We put ourselves there. We, at some level, felt we didn't belong, that we were imposters. And as a result, we are probably treated like we are, not as worthy, not as smart, not as capable. Now, is that 100% of the time? No. Is that the reason there's gender inequality? Of course not. But I think it plays into it. Just like the meeting when you go and don't speak up because you're questioning if you should or if it will be accepted, so then you take really good notes. But then when women are asked to take notes at meetings, we're offended because, well, it's a bias. But think about it. How often are we making ourselves the note taker? How often are we choosing not to speak up? How often are we putting ourselves the back of the room or around the table and not at the table. Now, company culture plays a role, 100%. Some cultures are more inclusive than others, and some are even aggressive. (laughs) I've heard stories from clients of when they were yelled at, when their male bosses have behind a closed door shouted at them, and that isn't okay in any environment or regardless of gender. Let's just be clear. Imposter syndrome can be a real showstopper for your career and can keep you stuck where you are. It causes feeling of doubt, fear, and even self-sabotage. You worry you'll be too visible, you'll be rejected, that you don't really belong. So you start looking to others to see how you should act and keep yourself small. And of course, our society doesn't help. We have a long history of inequality amongst gender and race and culture. So some of that is the nature of the environment that we grew up in and the culture of our company, but we also have to be aware of where we're doing it to ourselves, where we're keeping ourselves small, where we are deciding in advance that we are an imposter. So how can you feel you belong and get over imposter syndrome regardless of your company culture? That's what we're going to talk about. First, you need to be aware of how you're feeling and what you do as a result of those feelings. The next time you're feeling like an imposter, write it down. Write down what the circumstance was, what you thought about it, how you felt, and what you did or didn't do as a result. For example, you're invited to a meeting. You don't share as much as you want to, and you feel like people don't want to hear what you have to say or they don't value what you have to say. As close to the meeting as possible, write down what your thoughts were about the meeting. What did you think your role was in the meeting? What did you think of the people in the meeting? And so on. Get it all out without editing. Then take one of the thoughts that really sticks out to you and write down how that thought made you feel. Do that for as many thoughts as you want. Each thought is going to generate a feeling. Then, for that feeling, what action or inaction did you take? Did you speak up? Did you get defensive? Did you stay quiet? Did you look at your phone? Did you spend time talking to yourself in your head instead of really listening? When I work with my clients, I call this think, feel, heal. We bring awareness to our thoughts and our feelings so that we can see how we act or don't act and decide if that is what we really want, if that is serving our goals. If not, we work on changing that pattern so that we can get a different result. 
So first, you're going to take an event or circumstance. Write down all your thoughts about it, your feelings, and what you did or did not do. Second, I want you to look at all of your thoughts and question if they are factual. Now, I know you're thinking, of course they are, but hang with me. (laughs) If you think they don't want to hear what I have to say, ask yourself, is that true? Could you prove it in a court of law? Would all seven or eight billion people in the world agree with you that that is true? Take notice of how many thoughts are factual. We have thousands of thoughts every day and 80% of them are negative. Our brain is wired to protect us, to avoid pain and make things easier for us. So our brain's default is going to be the negative. It doesn't think impossibility or positives all the time. So these thoughts can feel true. They can feel like they're a fact. So you have to question them and decide, are they actually a fact or is it the story that you're telling yourself? So now you've documented the event, your thoughts and feelings, and your actions, and you've also separated the facts from the story. The third step is to notice the patterns. What results are you getting from your thoughts, those negative thoughts? How are they not true? How are they helping you? What thought would you need to have to have a different feeling and action? How could your results be different? For example, instead of, they don't want to hear what I have to say, what if you could tweak it to say or to think they might want to hear what I have to say? Would that generate a different feeling and action? I think it would. If you go into something and you're thinking they don't want to hear what I have to say, a feeling that's going to come up with that is probably, it could be anger, it could be shame, it could be frustration, it could be sadness. And when you're in that feeling, The action that you're going to take is going to be different. You're going to be more likely not to speak up because you're going to think they don't want to hear what you have to say. Or you're going to speak up and you're going to do so in a way that isn't as good as you would do it if you believe they wanted to hear you because you're just thinking that they just want you to hurry up. But if your thought was modified just a little bit and you were capable of thinking instead, they might want to hear what you have to say. That is going to generate a different feeling than shame or anger or sadness. And so your action is going to be different. And the action that you take is going to have a different effect because it's coming from a different place. So that is a simple three-step process you can use to help you overcome imposter syndrome. The other advice that I want to offer is to work on self-confidence. It's really interesting, but many of my clients don't think they struggle with confidence, but once we get into the details of where they're having challenges, they see it coming up for them and how it's holding them back, but they don't know it, right? My clients tend to be successful, high-performing women who are just looking for what their next step is, how to overcome a challenging work culture, how to deal with difficult people, how to figure out their five-year plan, how to know what their dream job is or how to create balance in their life, how to transition to a new type of role or move into leadership, right? So they're already successful. And so the idea that they don't have confidence is something they wouldn't identify as the, as with themselves. Some of them would, but a lot of them don't. And it comes up through the coaching process. So self-confidence is trusting yourself, being willing to experience any emotion and the thoughts about yourself. So what you think about your capabilities, your skills, your values. So think back to the town hall. 
When I say my self-confidence wasn't where it needed to be, it's because I didn't trust that I could handle any emotion. I knew what I had to say was important or that I am smart and capable, but I was worried I'd be embarrassed or feel rejected and I was avoiding that feeling. It's why this podcast is Career Women Becoming Fearless. The fearless piece is to take action from a place that you know you can handle anything, that you go after your goals regardless of what it takes, regardless of what you might feel or what others might think. It's the ultimate in self-confidence. And once you experience it, you will be unstoppable. You won't question if you are right for a job, if you belong at the table, or if your goals matter. I have a mission to help 10,000 women like you get there, to achieve your goals and live a life you wouldn't otherwise, to feel what it is like to know your value and not let other people impact what you think of yourself or the choices you make about what you're capable of so that you can see the possibilities that exist for you. Like I said about the brain, it's not wired for that and I want to help you rewire it to live in possibility, to live in fearlessness. All right, my friends, (laughs) I'm clearly very passionate about that. If this is something that you could use help with, I invite you to apply for coaching. Coaching is the best development experience you could have. It changes your life because it changes how you think and that lasts forever. You take that in every situation, every company, every job. You will experience results that you wouldn't otherwise and you will do it quickly. And if I don't say so myself, it is fun. So if you want to learn more, go to my website at www.melissamlawrence.com to schedule a free call. We'll talk about your goals and we will see if coaching is a good fit. Have an amazing week.